Hosea chapter 8 and uh, you remember from Hosea 6 and 7 last week this message that we had to come face to face with in the text. That we are totally depraved. If you just wanted a phrase to describe who we are in our nature, in our, in our being from birth, it would be total depravity. I know some shy away from uh, words shortening doctrine into just a couple of words. But sometimes it's helpful for us. What do we mean by that, though, is the key. What we mean, what I mean, what this church means when we say we believe in total depravity, is the biblical concept that in every part of our being, we are completely sinful, rebellious in our nature against God in every part of our being. Therefore, everything that we do in our natural self is sin. So why Paul said, that which is done without faith, and you can add there rightly because of other texts, without faith in the Son of Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is sin. Everything. That we do is sin. The best we bring is filthy rags, right? We are totally depraved. That's Hosea 6 and 7. In a nutshell, the people of Israel came with this half-hearted, he called it, half-baked repentance. They were like hot ovens. They were like half-cooked dough. I talked about pancakes, remember? You cook pancakes, you've seen pancakes cooked on the side that's touching the pan, it's done, the dough on top bubbles, you flip it over because the dough is not finished. You wouldn't eat a half-cooked cake, would you? I mean, it wouldn't taste good. That's not what we do. We turn it over. God says your repentance is like that pancake. It's done on one side and raw on the other. And so I reject it. Yes, our God rejects some repentance. And we had to come face to face with that in Hosea 6 and 7. It's not a pretty message. It's not one that you probably uh, looked at and said, Oh, I feel so good about myself. Remember I said at the end, if you left last week feeling good about yourself, then the message didn't work. It didn't go forward. I failed. The message, the the word didn't fail, but I failed. We must come face to face with this reality. And and one large part of that was repentance, right? We talked about repentance. What's the difference in half-baked or unacceptable repentance and real repentance? And and maybe I, um, for sake of time, didn't cover that as well as I'd like. And so in this introduction, I want to cover a little bit about that. Because it sets us up for chapter 8. We must first, when we repent, repent of ourselves. For a person who says they are in Christ, you are not in Christ. You are not saved simply because you realized you did some bad things. You felt bad about it. And you wanted to get forgiveness for those bad things you did. And so you repent, you repented, you were sorry, right? Godly sorrow even. 
You're broken over that. I mean, it's terrible the things that I've done, you might say. And so you repented of those things. That's what Israel, in a sense, did. They repented of the things they had, they had done. But they did not repent of themselves. You cannot be saved unless you repent of yourself. You're not in Christ today, I might say. If I could be so bold. If you're still holding on to your ability in any way to please God. You are not a Christian if you hold on to the fact that you believe in some way you can please God with the things you do or the person you are. You are not in Christ if that's the statement that you would make about yourself. You are not in Christ. True faith brings repentance of, first of all, who I am in my nature. I am totally depraved. I am absolutely unacceptable in every way to God. I have no hope in myself. My abilities are worthless in front of Him. This concept of repentance is carried throughout the Scripture. I want to read some passages. I don't want you to flip there for time's sake, and they're not the main text we're going to deal with. But I do want to give you some proof of this in the Bible, that I'm not just making this up, okay? Job 42, verses 1 through 6. Listen to Job. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. In quotations, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. These things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. In quotations again, he says, hear and I will speak. He's quoting things he said. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. And then he's reporting on himself. I had heard of you with my ears. I had heard of you with my ears. But now my eyes see you. Here's the key. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Repentance that brings salvation is a turning from oneself to depend completely and utterly in every way on Christ, the Savior. Psalm 51. Um, we might reference. I don't want to read the whole thing, but just part of it. Listen to David. When Nathan brings him the charge against him, the sin which he committed with Bathsheba, listen to what he says. Have mercy on me. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. He's casting himself on the goodness of God. He's casting himself on God's abilities, not on his ability. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly, completely. In, in every part of my being, I've transgressed God's law. Wash me completely, utterly, thoroughly. And cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Not one thing he did. Not just Bathsheba. But my sins. All of it. Who I am. I, I read. He's saying who I am is always before me. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. Against you. You only have I sinned. 
I, yes, I sinned against Bathsheba, and I sinned against my wife, and I sinned against Uriah, and I sinned against the armies of Israel, and I sinned against Israel herself, and I sinned in all these ways. But against you and you only have I sinned. He's not repenting of hurting other people. He's repenting of who he is before God. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. Why am I this way? Because this is how I was born. It's who I am. You hear it. I'm repenting not for what I've done, but for who I am. I was born in this sin. And in sin did my mother conceive me. And then we skip down to verse 7. He says, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And then verses 10 through 12. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. And take not your spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. And then verse 16 and 17. He says, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart. What do you need to repent of if you are here without Christ Not your actions, but of who you are. Who you were born as. A rebellious, totally sinful being against the beautiful and wonderful person of God. Isaiah 6 verse 5. Isaiah had the revelation of who God was seated on the throne. I believe he saw Jesus Christ in that vision. And the train of his robe filled the universe. And these are his words. Woe is me. What did Isaiah repent of? Me. Woe is me. For I am lost. He didn't point to, I I did that thing last night, God. I'm so sorry. When he saw who God was, when he came face to face with Christ, he repented of who he was. Woe is me. I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. Jesus said that that which comes out of the man's mouth is who he is. Because it comes from who the man is in his core. Not what goes in defiles, but that which comes out defiles, right? Is it any wonder that Isaiah said, I got unclean lips? It's a deeper statement than just I talk dirty every now and then. He's saying, I'm undone. I'm unclean. The things that come out of me are sin. I'm a man of unclean lips, dwelling among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King. Isn't it interesting that in all of these passages, when the writer or the speaker saw Christ, they repented of who they were. Some of you are holding on to your abilities because you're comparing your ability to the ability of the person next to you. 
Listen, I've heard as insane a comparison as I'm not as bad as Hitler or Jeffrey Dahmer. That's not the point. Jeffrey Dahmer and Hitler are not the standard. Neither is your neighbor. Christ is the standard. So when you come face to face with Him, all of a sudden you're prostrate saying, Woe is me. I'm not good enough. My best is a filthy rag. Like the high priest who entering the temple saw God. We lose control of our innards. And we soil our self-righteous garments. When we see Christ, when we see Him, we will repent of who we are. Luke chapter 14. Jesus talking about discipleship says this. Now the crowd gathered around Him and He turned and said to them, If anyone comes to Me and does not have hate and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot follow Me. Now, I know it's very popular to say, now, he didn't really mean that. Let me tell you what that means. I do not debate the fact that he's not saying that you physically and mentally hate your mother and father. That would be breaking the commandment to honor your mother and father, right? But do not water it down to the point that all you're doing is putting them second and Him first. I'm just going to put Jesus a little bit ahead of my mom and dad or of myself. Just a little bit ahead. Jesus says, I am God, therefore I deserve a whole other category. You don't even put somebody behind me. If you put somebody behind me, you can't follow me. I follow Jesus 90% of the time, but 10% of the time I do for me and for my family and for my friends. No, Jesus says, then don't follow me. I'm in a whole other category. I don't register on the same scale as other things. It's not just simply He's A and then there's B. He's A through Z for the Christian. Isn't that what He said? In Revelation 22, one of the last words about Himself, what? I am the Alpha and the Omega. What does that mean? The beginning of the alphabet in the Greek language and the end of the alphabet. I'm not A and then everybody else is B, C, D. No, I'm A through Z. And if you don't come with that kind of repentance, then you're not in Christ. It's what he said. That's not what I said. It's what he says. We've been sold a bill of goods, haven't we? In this thing we call Christianity here in the Western world. We've been sold a bill of goods, people. Me and you. And we bought it hook, line, and sinker. I can have my life and add Jesus on it. And everything's going to be okay. 
And when the foundations of that life we've so much craved begin to rumble and shake, what we're going to see in chapter 8 of Hosea is that we run to fortresses to protect us that are not Christ. Because He was never A. He was never B. He was never C in our life. He was non-existent. He was a byword that we spoke. A blessing that we said to soothe our guilty consciences. All the while searing our God-given conscience which witnessed either it's God and nothing else or no God in everything else. Listen, it's late in the game. For most of us. But it's never too late to admit we started on the wrong path. And my repentance was of a lot of stuff, but it was never what you're talking about. It's never too late for that until you draw your last breath. And so Hosea 6 and 7 opened us up to what real repentance is and what it means to be the people of God. And we see these other texts. I mean, that passage, I, I, I was going to read the whole thing, but I got excited. So for time's sake, I'm going to read verse 33. In Luke 14, 33, what does he say? So therefore, anyone of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot follow me. Jesus is not our 401k for eternity. Jesus is not the fire insurance to get us into heaven. He's everything or He's nothing. You're for me or you're against me. You've repented of yourself or you're still trusting yourself. But you can't trust yourself and me. Galatians 2.20 that, that kind of repentance is why Paul writes verses like Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Therefore, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. What does it mean to be repentive for salvation? Repent towards salvation. What does that mean? It means death for who I am. Everything I am. And that everything in my life now is Christ's. Because you're going to have a father and a mother and a wife and children and a work and a church and ministry and friends and endeavors that you enjoy. And you say, well, how can I do all those things and have Jesus? Because you can't, again, He's not on the scale with those things as if you give Him a little time and then all the other things time. No, He is the scale above all things and in all things and through all things and for Him all things are done. Therefore, it's all His. You can be a son, a husband, a wife, and be a Christian. But He must be singularly our aim above all things. That's what I'm saying.
And that's what Hosea 6 and 7 really get to is Israel's failure to have this true repentance. It continued to try to tack God on. Play the game, the hypocritical game. These are just a few verses that represent an even more massive word from Scripture on repentance. Now let's compare these verses of true repentance with Hosea 6, 1 through 3. Go back to Hosea 6, 1 through 3 and listen to them. Come, let us return to the Lord. For He has torn us that He may heal us. He has struck us down and He will bind us up. After two days He will revive us. On the third day He will raise you up that we may live before Him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the shower, as the uh, spring rains that water the earth. What's the difference? Israel in this passage, which Hosea verbalizes on their behalf, saying this is what they've done. I don't see this as a future confession of Israel, in other words. This is what they were saying in Hosea's day. God's calling us to repent. Okay, we'll repent. Let's go be with the Lord. He's torn us up. Now He'll give us back our wealth. He, he's beat us down for two days. And on the third day, we'll rise up. That was the attitude of their heart. This partial repentance. What were they wanting? The gift and not the giver. There is nothing in Hosea 6, 1 through 3 about we are undone. We are sinners. From our very being, we rebel against you, O God. There's no repenting of self. Israel repents half-heartedly. Do you see the difference I'm driving at in these two types of repentance? Israel's so-called repentance is nothing but self-centered, self-consumed, self-preservation. And God is not bound to accept this pitiful excuse of repentance. Matter of fact, He doesn't accept it. God despises this. He despises it. He hates it. As hypocritical, half-hearted, self-motivated, worthy of His judgment. And many of those gathered in this congregation and thousands of other congregations in the evangelical world right now at this very moment sit under God's wrath because they have this, this same exact attitude. God is not the cosmic Santa Claus to make your life feel good. God could care less about your happiness in the moment. What He is all about is making you look like His Son and your eternal joy in that Son, Jesus Christ. That's what God does care about in your life. If you continue to follow the, fa- the path of self-preservation, God will pour out His wrath and consume you 
for the sake of His righteous Son. Hosea 6 and 7 show us that God does not accept all attempts at repentance. And, and you are probably hoping for a more upbeat and positive message today. And yet God continues the onslaught in Hosea 8. It doesn't get better. It just gets worse. It just gets worse. We look at Hosea 8 in verse 7. If I just want to stop right here and give you... I want you to see how I divide text up and how I study, okay? This is an outline. I got it straight out of the Bible. I didn't create it, all right? I wrote it in these simple words, and when I give it to you, it's going to be a little more polished and refined. But when I was studying through, I wrote it down, all right? First division of the chapter, verses 1 through 3, covenant breaking. That's what... The whole first three verses are about Israel's covenant breaking. Verses 4 through 6. Godless leaders and God, godless religion. Or you might say godless leaders equals brings about godless religion. That's 4 through 6. Then verse 7. It stands by itself. I bracketed 1 through 3 and 4 through 6 and 7 I circled. This is a proverbial statement. In, in this one statement, Hosea sums up the whole chapter. They have sowed to the wind and they will reap the whirlwind. The standing grain, his second picture for us, the standing grain has no head. It shall yield no flower. If it were to yield flower, strangers would devour it. That's the proverbial statement of Hosea about the whole chapter. He's summing it up in a sense. And then he, like any good preacher, he doesn't miss an opportunity to go on after he's ended. That's a deep, long-running tradition. It goes all the way back to Moses. He made his point. And now he, he, he goes further. Verses 8 through 10 divide together ungodly alliances. Ungodly alliances. And then finally, in verses 11 through 13, we find advanced idolatry. There was idolatry, godless religion, and now we've advanced. Way beyond the fringes, we're in the depths of idolatry. In verses 11 through 13. And then verse 14. Again, a standalone verse summing up the entire situation. For Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces. And Judah has multiplied fortified cities. So I will send a fire upon his cities and it shall devour her strongholds. Now, let me go back. I've given you this outline that comes, do you see, that comes out of the text. I'm not making that up. I'm not superimposing something here on the Scripture. It's just here, all right? And I gave it a title, The Fruitless Harvest of Rebellion. Because the head, the grain, standing grain has no heads, and therefore it will yield no harvest. Okay? 
Just a peek. I want you to kind of see you can do this. You can do what I do. In your study, at home, with your Word, the Word of God, your copy of it, before you. You can do it. I want you to do it. Israel has rebelled against God and His law. They have refused authentic repentance. And now God says they will reap the bitter harvest of rebellion. So let's look at this a little closer now that I've kind of given you a general outline. And let's polish up this outline that's a little rough. I want to start out focusing on Hosea 7, 8, 7, because I think, it, like I said, in that is the, it's the, he captures the entire chapter here. Okay? For they sow the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. You know, wind is a common analogy in the scriptures. Wind. And this wind that is the common analogy is destructive wind. Wind is something that's seen as un, you can't harness it in their day. You can't control it. You can't predict it. It comes and it goes. And when it comes in their world, it was a bad thing. It wasn't a good thing. It's a bad thing. It blew houses down. It blew uh, fields of grain down to where they couldn't be easily reaped and they rotted on the ground. I mean, it was a bad deal. So they sowed the wind. They had all these little problems in their lives. A little problem here, a little problem there. But they're not going to reap a little judgment for those little problems. They're going to reap the whirlwind. Now, in this part of the country, I don't need to explain a whirlwind, do I? You know exactly what it looks like. Some of you have probably seen them with your own eyes. You know, I have on a couple of occasions. And it's very vivid in my mind. Going down the road with my grandfather just outside of Tuscumbia, Alabama, in his little pickup truck as a little kid. And those big red clay fields up there that just seemed to stretch forever. And it was, you know, raining and thunder and lightning. And I'm kind of, we're bopping along to the radio there. My granddad and I are having a great day. And all of a sudden, he just stops on the side of the road. And we get out and get in the ditch. I was five, six years old. I didn't know what we were doing. What were we doing? Peeking from that ditch up in front of us. A tornado. Now it was far enough away it did no damage to us. We observed it from a distance. Very vivid in my mind. Probably we could go through the congregation there would be hundreds of stories about the whirlwind, the tornado, the destruction that it brings. And so what God is saying, you have sown Rebellion, the wind. You have sown it. it. It didn't come on you from the outside. You did it. And you're not going to reap a little wind. Because of your rebellion, you're going to reap the tornado. The total destruction of your life. He goes further. Now, 
You might not know what it is to, gr- to labor and grow a crop and not have anything to reap. I've seen it. In 1994, our family cotton farm was hit with a pestilence of worms, army worms. We had a two-bale cotton crop. For you laymen, that's good cotton, real good. Probably the best cotton I'd ever laid eyes on. We were out in the middle of the field in July. Squares, bowls. I mean, I could just, my mouth was watering with this harvest. We had worked all year. And my dad turned over a leaf. On the bottom of that leaf was a pod of army worm eggs. So we started looking. Everywhere in the field were these pods of eggs. We began to spray. Little did we know, they were immune to our chemicals. They ate our entire cotton crop. We went from two bales to less than half a bale. We bush hogged the fields of cotton because it cost more to pick it than it did to bush hog it. Your standing grain has no head. There won't be a harvest. And anything on that stalk, Israel, somebody else will eat it. The army worm of Assyria will eat any good yield you might have had. In other words, there's all this labor towards a crop that now will be rewarded with judgment because they have prior to this broken the covenant. And what does that say to me? I hope it says the same thing to you. Your life may be going along okay right now and you're doing all these little things here, little things there that show signs of rebellion against God, but yet you're still doing okay. God says, I haven't missed what you're doing. The whirlwind's coming. I haven't missed what you're doing. Your crop's going to fail. So we come to Hosea 8. Verse 7, and we get the capsule version of the entire chapter. But let's back up. Why is this happening? Why are they being judged? Why are we being judged? Might be a good question. We will be judged because we have broken relationship with God. Verses 1 through 3, the covenant breaking of Israel. We will be judged because we have broken relationship with God. This is a consistent pattern in Scripture that man breaks the covenant with God. Adam, as we talked about last week, broke the covenant with God in the garden. And we see evidence of it in that it's a relationship. That it's a relationship in chapter 3, verse 8. When it says, and in the cool of the day, God came, the Lord God came. To walk with them. And he called out to them and they didn't respond, did they? They had broken relationship 
Breaking the covenant means breaking relationship. They have broken the relationship with God. Look at Israel's breaking of the covenant here in verses 1 through 3. Set the trumpet to your lips. Call them. Warn them. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord. This vulture in this time in history was Assyria. She was already hovering over her prey. Israel was her prey. Because, causal statement, they have transgressed my covenant. They have transgressed a relationship. The covenant is a symbol of relationship. And have violated the law. They've rebelled against my law. They broke the relationship and they've broken my law. Some people take it as two separate things. You break the covenant and you break the law. I take it as one thing. Breaking the relationship is breaking the law. Breaking the law is proof you have no relationship with Him. I take that from John chapter 15, where Jesus says, If you love me, what? You will obey my commands. If you have a relationship with God, His commands are like breathing and eating to you. They're not tiresome. They're not burdensome. They're not a bother. They're a joy. They're something we run to do. It's a privilege. Israel broke the relationship. Same statement, they violated, they rebelled against my law. That was the evidence. That was the point in case. You want to know how I know you broke the covenant? Because you broke my law. So, Adam did it in the garden, and Israel, we see, has done it here. But we also have broken the relationship with God. We all have. Romans 1 is our testimony as Gentiles, right? They have rejected the knowledge of God, which is available to everybody, and they have worshipped the creation and not the Creator. From the very beginning of our lives, we have broken relationship with God. That's our problem. That's our flaw. Not that I'm a cheater. Not that I'm a liar. Not that I'm a blasphemer. Not that I'm against my parents. Not that I say curse words. Not that I'm sexually immoral. That's not the issue, really. Those are the symptoms of the issue. That's the evidence that you have a problem. The problem is you have no relationship with God. When He wrote the law, the Decalogue, The Ten Commandments. How did He preface it in Exodus 20? I am the Lord your God. I brought you out of the house of Egypt. What's He saying? We have a relationship. I've saved you. I've rescued you. I've pulled you out of bondage. I've given you freedom. Now, you shall have no other gods before me. The law comes after the relationship. And the law is not the basis of the relationship. It is the evidence... It is God's command over us, and our breaking of it is the evidence we have no relationship, or we have a diminished relationship, I say that way. That's why, no matter how good you try to be at this point after breaking the law, can you please God? You can't get back to God through the law. It's impossible. We've already violated it. We've already been out of fellowship. Matter of fact, David said we were born out of fellowship, right? So everything we did prior to coming to Christ was a sin. It was not acceptable. And so, as we look at it, there's no way home. 
as our home group study says, right? There's no way home through the law. You can't improve yourself and become acceptable to God. Well, then what must I do? Repent of yourself and cling to Christ in faith. Trust Christ in faith. Listen, the only way home, the only way to God, the only way to relationship with Him is through the one who kept the law. It's through the one who was perfect on our behalf, who was not sin but became sin for us so that we might have a relationship with the living God. That's our only hope. We need, as Peter said, someone, Christ, to carry us to God. That's the gospel. God's preaching the gospel to Israel. You can't come to me with this half-hearted, self-motivated, self-preserving repentance to keep everything that you are and expect me to accept it. Everything you are is offensive to me. Repent of it and trust me completely. That's what God's preaching in these chapters to them and to us. To Israel and to the church. To us. We will be judged because we have chosen or we have rebelled. We've broken the relationship with God. Secondly, we, we will be judged because we have chosen godlessness over godliness. Godlessness over godliness. Verses 4 through 6. If you look at the passage. They made kings, but not through me. I mean, the whole king concept is a rejection of God, right? In 1 Samuel chapter 8, when they're crying out for a king, what they're saying is, we don't want you, God. They had a king. God was their king. We don't want you. We want to be like everybody else on the earth. All these nations who were warring against, they have a leader, they have a king. We want a king. It was idolatry. Because they would have said, oh, we, this is how they would have phrased it probably. Oh, it's not that we don't want you to be our king, God, but we want to have a visible representative of you so we can look at him and call him king. But really, we know you're our king. That's the definition of idolatry. We can't see God, therefore we make visible images and say, oh, it's not God, we're going to get to this in a minute. Oh, it's not really, we don't think that's God, but it's just a representative of God. And God says, no, that's a, you're, you're worshiping that thing. And God told them from the outset it wasn't going to go well, didn't he? First Samuel chapter 8, what did he say? Okay, you can have your king. Let me tell you what he's going to do. He's going to take your sons. He's going to take your daughters. He's going to take your land. And you're going to cry out to me. And listen to what he says. It's a haunting word. In that day, I will not answer you. Israel in Hosea chapter 8 is crying out to God. In Hosea 6, they're crying out to God. Oh, God, it's so bad. Come and rescue us. And he says, no, no. Oh, no. You have a king. He's not my king, but you have a king. You've worshipped and served him. Let him answer. See, Israel had a king. Hoshea was his name. He's the last king of Israel. He killed Pekah, 
to ascend to the throne. He murdered the king. That's a great story, isn't it? I mean, you could write the history of Israel into a movie. They killed the cock. He ascends to the throne. And what's the first thing he does? I'll tell you. He made a treaty with Assyria. Because Assyria was the big boy on the block. And he said, it's politically best for us to make friends, not war. So let's make friends. He ran to a fortress, a stronghold, a protector in Syria. He did not run to God. Israel did not run to God and say, shield us, protect us. They rebelled against God. Completely and utterly rebelled against God. And they're being judged because they chose godlessness over godliness. They rejected God as their king and they had a so-called king like all the other nations. And these godless leaders led them into idolatry. Exodus 32.5, we see the entrance of idolatry into the people of Israel. I mean, they're in the desert. They've just gotten the law. Moses is on the mountain. He hadn't even come back yet with God's Word to them. And they're already worshiping some calf made of gold. We want a God like Egypt. What are they saying? We don't want you, God. We want this God, a God of this world, one to our liking, one like all the other nations. We will be judged because we have chosen godlessness. We have over godliness. What am I, to put it in for you today, statement. Israel is just simply a picture of us. Now, can I ask you this? Because this is a sin that I struggle with this week. Things are bad uh, in the world. The economies of the world are crumbling. The foundations of this world are being shaken. Some of that has become even more real this week as people like Murdoff and others are let off to prison for their evil ways. How many of you, when you saw him, 70-year-old man, standing before a judge, saying, I know what I did, I know it was wrong, I just want to serve my time. How many of you thought he got what he had coming? That dirty, rotten scoundrel. He's a cheat. He's a liar. He's a thief. I hate thieves. How many of you then quickly turn to the stocks ticker to see how your God was doing today? Or said, I got to check out my 401k. See if we're going to survive. Or said, I, I don't know where my paycheck's going to come from, but I just got to work harder to get it. Or said, it's on me to provide for my family, so I got to go get it while I can. May I tell you, you've taken the first step 
that Murdoff took. Your dependence and your self-worth is wrapped up in the things of this world, the idols which are offered to us on a platter. Don't be surprised at what will come from that kind of worship. You might not run off with $68 billion because you might not be that good a thief. But your savings account may be your ticket to hell. Because it is a fortress like Assyria was to Israel to say, oh, we're good as long as it's above this number. Whatever your number is, different for everybody. Instead of, it's good because I know the one who sits on the throne of heaven, who owns the cattle of a thousand hills. And come what may, he is my hope. He is my future. Some of you say, oh, I know these people that trust in the economy, like Carlton, man, they, they're bad. They're bad. As long as I got my family, I'm all right. Don't be surprised what comes out of that kind of idolatry. Don't be surprised when it wrecks your home, when your children on the verge of mental breakdown because you've placed on them the pressure to succeed at such a level, not because you want them to succeed, but because that's where you find your worth in your family looking good to everyone else. Don't be shocked when you come home and your wife has written you a Dear John letter that says, I can't live this hypocritical lifestyle we've been holding up anymore. I'm done. I'm gone. That kind of idolatry will rip you to the core and you say I hate it when people put their trust in the economy and in their family I don't have that problem no your problem is even more self deceptive your problem is ministry as long as everything else is bad as long as the ministry is good we're good we're okay because that's our fortress that's what we hide in we feel good about ourselves and then When that fades, what do we have? Many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, we did all these things in your name. And I will say to them, depart. I don't know who you are. You sowed to the wind. And now you can reap the whirlwind. So you don't think I'm on the bully pulpit here. Earlier this week, You know, I took a look at where we are financially as a church. I don't do that very often. And to be honest and open with you, we're behind financially. We're behind. And I'm not wanting to talk about that. I'm wanting to tell you that I suffer from this same kind of idolatry because when I got that report, my reaction was terrible. It was awful. My first responses were all awful. They were all from the flesh. We can cut this. We can cut that. I can cut myself here. I can cut that over there. We can make ends meet. Self-sufficiency. Rather than, it's bad. We need to be prudent. But God will provide. 
And then the next responses were bad. Because then I began to think, if we don't have funds, we can't do these ministries. What will we do if we don't have the ministries? Missions and other things. And by the end of the week, just to show you that it's real. Oh, my wife is a great error in the sanctifying bow of the Lord. Because by Friday, she was tired of hearing it. My whining from Tuesday to Friday. And so she said, I don't want to talk about it anymore. Basically, she said, you either believe what you say you believe about God or you don't. Tough. So what do I do? Do more good works? No. Do more ministry? No. Repent of myself and say, I have my hope in the wrong things in these areas. Oh, God, be my hope, be my rock, be my refuge, be my stronghold, be my provider. Christ, if you are not sufficient, it matters not what I do anyway. So I've been undone and broken in all this because I'm still sinful, right? And you are still sinful. And so it's easy to point at the Murdoffs and the thieves and the crooks out there and the people who worship their families, the people who worship ministry out there in Israel, back there in history. But we really need to look at us, don't we? And say, we're guilty just like they were. And God's message to us is the same as His message was to them. Third, we will be judged because we have found refuge in the world and not Christ. I gave you that one. The Psalm 46 text comes to mind. Though the foundations of the earth be shaken, we will not fear. That's what we ought to be saying about the economy. Though the foundation of this world, the economy of this world, which is its foundation, its fluidity, its abilities, in economic terms are what we count our worth as. Though that's shaken, I have no fear. Because that's not my fortress. The Lord is my fortress. That's what he started out with. Matthew 11 comes to mind in 28 and 30 when Jesus says, Cast your cares upon me, all ye who are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What weeks like this past week show me is I'm not fully there yet, am I? And neither are you. And we're still in need of repenting of our old man that still rears his head at war against the Spirit in us. And we need to not fix him. We need to repent of him and cling to Christ. Cling to Christ. Fourthly and finally, we will be judged because we have loved the idols of our own making instead of loving Christ. They built these altars in, in 11 uh, through 13. You see, he mentions them. As for, my sacrificial offer, as for my sacrificial offerings in verse 13, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. They'll return 
to their bondage. And they did. They were scattered as a people after the, this prophecy. Scattered. And you see here that they made these offerings on an altar which they made with their own hands. And they said these altars were to Jehovah. Because Ephraim, in verse 11, has multiplied altars for sinning, they have come, become to him altars of sinning. They were calling it the worship of Yahweh. And Yahweh is saying, you're not worshiping me. You're worshiping idols. The calf of Samaria that's referenced for us here in verse uh, 6 resembled the other gods of the the world around this, Syrians and the, Mesopotam- the people in Mesopotamia who worship false gods. They did not, as I said earlier, say they were worshiping that idol. They said they were worshiping an unseen God. But we know from the Decalogue, from the Ten Commandments, you can't make an image to represent the unseen God. He will not be represented that way. That's what I'm saying about these altars we have in our lives that look like economy and look like family and look like ministry. Listen, you're deceiving yourself to say, I'm doing this for the sake of the kingdom. When you know in your heart it has nothing to do with the kingdom of God and everything to do with your self-worth. That's what the last passage there in 11 through 13 really is showing. You can make all the altars you want. Matter of fact, I could write 10,000 laws. It would mean nothing to you because you don't care about me. You care about your idols. You care about your other gods. You serve and worship them. Therefore, I'll judge you. So the judgment of God comes on them. For these reasons and probably many more, we're not told. But we do the same thing. That's, that's, that's kind of where I want to bring this to an end. We do the same thing often by ministering in our own name, not Christ. Building for our own comfort and not for the kingdom. The human response to uh, struggles in ministry is to work harder. Sometimes working harder is the problem because it's working for the sake of my kingdom, not the kingdom. What we are about to experience is bad. Can, can I be honest and straightforward? Maybe the national leaders won't tell you that. I believe we have only scratched the surface of how bad it's about to be. I'm not trying to be a prophet of doom and gloom. Just be honest. Your 401k is going to look worse in a year, not better. There's going to be a lot of people without a job. And you may be one of them, and I may be one of them. There's going to be social revolt in the world. If not at home, abroad. Don't be shocked when you turn it on and other countries are falling apart at the seams over this thing. I'm telling you, it's going to get bad. And we need to be thankful. 
thankful that our God cares so much for His glory and for our soul that He will not share His glory with anything or anyone. You see, recessions and downturns and depressions and whatever you want to call them are good in many ways because what it does is shakes our roots, cuts our roots of joy in this world and forces us to transplant our hope and our joy in Christ. We need it. We need it. And that's how he ends. That's how I want to end in 14. Israel has forgotten his maker. We could say, we could say the same for most of us. We've forgotten our maker. And we've built spacious dwelling places. That's what that word really means in the Hebrew. And fortified cities. And you say, that's not that big a deal, right? And sure it is. Because when they were without God, they replaced God with bigness. So God judges it. I'll send fire on their cities. And I'll devour their strongholds. The evangelical world, and we're part of it, has bought into the philosophy that bigger is better. Over the last 20 years, we have bought hook, line, and sinker the commercial onslaught of our world. And so we've built bigger and bigger facilities to house more and more people and raised more money. You realize last year more money was given in evangelical churches than ever before by dollar. By dollar, I'm saying. And less missions was done around the world. Money has gone up and missions has done this. How can that be? Because we're spending the money on ourselves. It's no longer about the estimated 2,000 people groups who've never heard the name of Christ. It's now about me and my family being comfortable. We've bought the idol. We're worshiping it in the name of our God, and it is not our God, the true God. It is a personal God. And now God is graciously sending the whirlwind. There's going to be a lot of foreclosure signs in front of churches, unfortunately, for the people, but great for the kingdom. There's going to be a lot of big buildings that are empty. There's going to be a lot of pastors who are having to re-examine. And I don't say that about pastors out there. This may be one of them. And the question we will be examining should be examining is this. Was God ever, was Christ ever really the foundation or was something else? Were we ever the people of God? And so that's the question I'm asking you to deal with from this passage. The relationship, is it broken? 
Are you practicing idolatry? Which is a symptom of the broken relationship. Are you finding your refuge in the things of this world? That's a symptom of the broken relationship. If you are, destruction is coming. You sow to the wind and you'll reap the whirlwind. Well, then what do I do? Repent of yourself and cling to Christ. Give me a new heart, O God. A heart of flesh and not a heart of stone. Let's pray. Father, as we close...